Father, your word is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. Please would your word shine this morning, that we might see the way to go and know that you love us and you want to lead us into life. And I pray that as you lead us, Lord, we would not be stubborn like the mule, difficult to lead, but we would be like sheep who follow their shepherd and eager to stay near you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, I feel a bit funny about this on a baptism Sunday, but the readings that I was handed from the lectionary all have a very strong theme that has nothing to do with baptism, right? <laughs> you, probably, you probably heard it as we were reading it. So first we read from Proverbs 16 that said, It is better to be of lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Then we sang at Psalm 112 that said, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Wealth and riches are in his house. He deals generously and lends. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. Then Hebrews 13 said, Keep your life free from the love of money. And finally, Jesus taught the Pharisees in Luke 14 to invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind into their homes for dinner. So I feel this message is kind of inescapable. Um, The readings were assigned today to get us to talk about money, um, and in particular, how we use our money to be generous to the poor. So that's what I want to talk about today. And we're just going to dip our toe into this subject, because the Bible has a lot to say about the subject of money, and I only have 20 minutes. Um, So very quickly, the Bible says, on the one hand, that there is a connection between righteous living and wealth. Okay, you can find this in lots of parts of the Bible, especially the Old Testament. So God's way of life, his way of hard work, creativity, faithfulness, maturity, and discipline will, in all likelihood, lead to material prosperity. So Psalm 112 is typical of this teaching, and it says, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, wealth and riches are in his house. Okay, So that's some sort of normal pattern, especially in the Old Testament, that there's a material blessing that comes through faithfulness. But then there's another teaching. On the other hand, there's another biblical idea that the wealth of the world very often falls into the hands of evil. And because of this, righteous people can end up being poor. Um, Because the just rewards of their labor are stripped away by injustice or oppression or persecution for God's name. Um, And when that happens, they don't rage against the system, but rather rejoice that they have a better inheritance. Um, So this is the idea in Proverbs chapter 16. It says, it is better to be of lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. See how that works? Solomon says it's better. So overall, the Bible doesn't curse either the rich or the poor. There's space made in its pages for both the joyful, righteous rich and the joyful, righteous poor. But it says to both groups and to everyone in between, do not love wealth. And it says live generously. So in the words of Psalm 62 verse 10, if riches increase, set not your heart upon them. Okay, so that's the core of the message that I want to bring you out of God's word this morning to all of us. And it applies wherever we fall on the financial spectrum. And I want to focus on Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5. And if you want to see this for yourselves, it's on page 1009 of the Church Bibles. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. It says, keep your life free from love of money. So that means... 
don't love money at all, and don't ever start loving it again. Keep your life free from love of money. So uh, this morning I have three questions to help us understand and apply this teaching. First, what does it look like to love money? Second, how does the gospel cure our love of money? And third, what can I practically do to escape the love of money? So first, what does it look like to love money? I've got a picture to show you this. When I thought about this question, um, here's the first image that came into my head. There it is. <laughs> That's a guy that loves money. Uh, if you grew up in the 80s and 90s, I'm sure you recognize this cartoon character. He's called Scrooge McDuck. Um, and he's the rich uncle of Huey, Dewey, and Louie. And quite obviously, he loves money. Um, he has this massive bank vault in his home that's full to bursting with gold coins and dollar bills. And this bank vault is his playground. He spends time there every day. Yeah, he has a diving board built into the side of the vault so he can go swimming in his money. Um, and he also piles up his piles of gold and goes skiing down the slope. Okay? And of course, Scrooge McDuck is never happier than when he's playing in his gold. So you can see on the screen, look at that great big smile on his face. Um, this vault is his happy place. Uh, so here's a character who definitely loves money. That's unmistakable. But of course, uh, he's just a cartoon. No one really has a vault like this. Uh, in fact, swimming in a pile of gold is physically impossible. Uh, as I discovered to my great sorrow when I grew up and stopped watching DuckTales. <coughs> diving into that would be like diving into concrete. Um, so no one can love money like Scrooge McDuck. But the Bible says that it is still possible to love money. So what does it look like when real people love money? And I think uh, we love money when we hold on to three core beliefs about it. First, that I really can't live without money. Second, that with a little more money, I could solve my problems. And third, that with enough money, I could be fulfilled as a person. All right, I really can't live without money. With a little bit more, I could solve my problems. And with enough, I could be fulfilled as a person. And I don't know about you, but I certainly fall into believing all three of those things fairly regularly. Here's how it tends to work in my own heart. Uh, the bank balance gets a little bit low, and I get anxious, and I start to worry about tomorrow and how those bills are going to get paid. And then a future without very much money starts to look a little bit forlorn and depressing. So really, in my deep heart, I believe that I can't truly live without it. Or again, I see something that I want, like a new phone or a new tool for my tool shed, and I realize that I can't afford it, and then my heart does this. It says that that new thing is really what I need, and a little bit more money would solve my real problem. Or then again, sometimes when life seems tiring and overwhelming, I go off into a daydream about winning the lottery. Not that I play the lottery, so my chances aren't very good. <laughs> but I still dream about it sometimes, and I feel that it would solve all my problems and truly fulfill me as a person. So there it is. I often fall into loving money. I don't love money like Scrooge McDuck loves money, but I do still fall into believing those three things about it. That I can't live without it, that it could solve my problems, and it could fulfill me as a person. <laughs> And yet we know that every one of those statements is a lie. We can live without money. We can because Jesus did. 
and Francis of Assisi did, and Brother Andrew did, and thousands of other saints have and do today. Even Gandhi did. Um, it doesn't solve all our problems, because who by their wealth has ever solved all their problems? You're telling me that Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos don't have problems? They just have different problems. The solutions that money provides are never satisfying solutions. Money can do a lot of things, but it can't give us any of the things that we really need. Mm -hmm. And of course, no amount of money can fulfill us. It can't satisfy our souls. It can't make us happy. And we proved that before from the book of Ecclesiastes. So love of money is really a lie. It's a false god. It's an idol. What it does is it keeps us chained up in this anxious little prison cell, worrying about holding on to the little that we have, envious of the people who have more, and reluctant to use our money for the only thing that it's good for, which is to serve the kingdom of God. And what could be more life-stealing than that? So I think it's no wonder that the author of Hebrews chooses this as one of only a handful of practical instructions at the end of his long and glorious letter. He says, keep your life free from love of money. So what does it look like to love money? It looks like needing it, wanting it, and trusting it. And if you're anything like me, then your life is not nearly as free from the love of money as Jesus would have it be. So then second, how does the gospel cure us of our love of money? For this, I want to think back to the whole first part of the book of Hebrews, because it's the theology in the first 12 chapters that give rise to the practical applications in chapter 13. If you know the book of Hebrews, you'll remember that this is a truly glorious book, one of the most glorious books of the New Testament. It spends most of its time up in the clouds, singing with the angels. Hebrews brings together all the most beautiful chords of Old Testament prophecy and binds them into one glorious symphony of worship to Jesus Christ. It says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It says that Jesus is greater than angels, greater than Moses, greater than the high priest, greater than Melchizedek. He offers a more perfect sacrifice than was ever seen in the temple. He offers it more perfectly, offers it once for all. And Jesus enters the most holy sanctuary of heaven of which the earthly tabernacle was the merest shadow of a copy. And Jesus takes us with him all the way with him by faith right to the very throne of God. So it says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It says, let us draw near to God. So the book of Hebrews dwells in the clouds with the angels in transcendent glory. And it brings us in chapter 12 to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festival gathering. It soars into the spiritual stratosphere. And then in chapter 13, it crashes back to earth with a bump. Because the author says, in conclusion, 
Go ahead and have strangers over to dinner, visit prisoners, quit fooling around with your secretary, and stop idolizing money. <laughs> right? That's what it says. And it really struck me this week how strange it is when you think about that. This marriage of the sublime and the ordinary in this letter. So up here, this is where we are. This is where we live now. We're partakers of God's own glory. And yet we still need to be instructed down here not to dig through the garbage cans of the world. The concern of God is up in heaven with a myriad angels in festive gathering. And it's down here in my bedroom and at my dinner table. How could those things matter to God? But they do matter. And how strange it is how long it takes for that sublime and glorious reality to trickle its way down into our ordinary everyday lives. Mm. It takes so long. But that's exactly what must happen. And that glorious reality is why the instruction about money makes sense. So Hebrews 10 verse 34 said, You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Better and lasting possessions. And then the author transitions from theological to practical in chapter 12, verse 28, when he says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So that's why we keep ourselves from love of money. We turn our backs on money, not because we're turning away from life and joy and wealth and happiness, but because we're turning toward those things, to the real things. We're choosing to leave behind worthless rubbish in order to receive the pearl of infinite value, the pearl of great price. And so friends, if we still love money, we really have to ask ourselves whether we really believe the gospel. Do we not believe Jesus when he says that his inheritance is worth so much more? Or do we not believe him when he says that we cannot serve two masters? Or do we not believe him when he promises that our Father will answer our prayers and will always have our backs? If we're still afraid to give up our love for money, then it would seem that at some point this message of the gospel is not really getting through to our hearts. Mm -hmm. But if it is getting through right now and we want to escape, then what can we practically do? Um, and the first thing I have to recommend to you is that when we pray, we stop asking God for money and start asking him for things. All right, so uh, if your car breaks down, don't pray for the money to fix it. Pray that God would get you back on the road. Let him decide how he wants to provide for that need. Or if you want to go out for a birthday dinner with friends but you can't afford it, don't pray for the money. Pray that God would make a way for you to go. Or if you're in debt and it's actually a money problem, still don't pray for money to clear your debts, but pray instead that God would provide for them to be settled so you can be free. Do you see, you're essentially paying for the same thing, but you're not asking for money, you're asking for the thing. And the reason I find this a healthy habit is because it trains our minds away from the idea that what I really need is money, right? It trains our minds away from that idea that God could only solve the problem if he gives me more money. When of course he doesn't need to do that, and in fact he seems to prefer to find another way. 
So I'll share this with you with a little bit of embarrassment, um, but I say it not to glorify myself, but to glorify the Father. Um, only a handful of times in my whole life has he ever surprised me with a windfall of cash. Only maybe twice ever. But while I've been asking him for things this past decade, the Lord has sent me five free cars, a free computer, a free washer and dryer, free furniture for my home, a free place to live, a free half of my wardrobe, and a free trip to Israel. Um, so it's kind of embarrassing how much he's like, just provided. And um, I'm doing better asking my father God for what I need than I would be playing all the, day, all the uh, game shows on daytime TV. <laughs> Um, so my first practical tip is that I strongly encourage you to ask God for things and not for money. And the second part is that we really have to live generously. Live generously. This is a non-negotiable in the Christian life. All our readings today were unanimous on this point. They say, deal generously, distribute freely, give to the poor, open your home to strangers and to people who could never pay you back. In other words, behave as a person who's eager to share and give away what you have. Someone who likes to do that and who's cheerful about it. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7 says, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. And if you don't feel like a very cheerful giver, then give anyway. Uh, fake it till you make it. Because the act of giving trains us out of our love for money and teaches us the gospel. Um, so however rich or poor we are ourselves, we must be in the regular habit of giving away. We must be eager to share whatever we have. That's a defining mark of the children of God. That's how you recognize them. So this is Proverbs 21, verse 26 in the message translation. Sinners are always wanting what they don't have, but the God loyal are always giving what they do have. See? And that's a mark in Proverbs of being God's child. So here's why we're cheerful about it. Because we believe what the Lord says about money. Uh, think about it. In eternity, what's going to be the value of the dollar? <laughs> zero, right? Absolutely zero. Uh, same as the pound and the peso and the euro and the yen. Um, so if you look at that little graph on, on Google that shows you the value of the dollar over time, and if you extend that time axis forward into the future, eventually that value will fall to zero. The Dow is going to lose all of its points. So in Wall Street terms, that makes the market decidedly bearish on the dollar. Sell, sell, sell. In early 2008, I had friends who were concerned about the state of the economy and they were buying up gold. They sensed, and it turned out correctly, that the dollar was in trouble and about to tank. So they planned ahead and they transferred their assets into a commodity that would keep its value. Was that a noble act? No, of course not. It was just smart. So if we take our dollars and we give them away to the kingdom of God, is that a noble act? I guess it might be. It depends on our motivation. But we shouldn't take too much credit for our kindness because it's really just smart. What we're really doing is taking a commodity which is soon going to be worthless and trading it for a commodity which is soon going to be priceless. Earth's only valid currency. Kingdom credits. I'm not making this up. It's what Jesus says. He says, don't store up treasure for yourself on earth where it depreciates and gets stolen, but store it up in heaven where it's eternally safe. In other words, this world is going bust. So get yourself some kingdom credits. 
And this teaching helps us with our own hearts too because it helps to redirect our loves. Jesus adds that where our treasure is, that's where our hearts are going to be also. And it's the same thing that we saw in our gospel passage today from Luke 14. Jesus said, don't host a fancy dinner party for rich people or say you get an earthly reward. Host a dinner party for poor and isolated people so that, what, you get a heavenly reward, right? So Jesus isn't appealing to our nobility or our kindness or any other part of our uh, better nature. It's just raw self-interest. You'll be richer in the long run if you do that. So do that. It just sounds financial strategy. The kingdom economy is the only bullish market in the long term. I'm not a stockbroker, but you can do that math for yourself. <laughs> Sell what's weak and temporary and soon to be worthless and buy what's strong and eternal and of infinite value. Giving is investing. Giving doesn't mean throwing good money away. It means investing it in God's future. And it pays out three times. First, because right now it shifts the affection of my own heart, because heart follows treasure, so it tells money, I don't love you. <laughs> Second, because right now that same gift blesses the recipient. Some poor or isolated person gets a dinner party or some other kind of help, which is worth far more to them than that money ever would have been to me. And third, it comes back later in kingdom credit. You've invested it in the kingdom of God and God pays out on those investments. You shouldn't need to, but he does. So if you want to instantly triple your money and give it away to bless the poor, Amen. giving is investing. So there's a cute little saying that goes, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Um, and that's true, isn't it? It's where every dollar goes that is given away for Jesus' sake. So I'm hoping that this feels like the happiest teaching you've ever heard on the subject of money. It is. It's full of freedom and life and victory and joy. And the conclusion of the gospel in Hebrews 13 verse 5 is keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So I'm going to leave you now for a few moments of silent prayer with the Lord. Um, I want you to process this sermon in your own heart and bring God your ideas of how you want to put this word into practice. And also ask him for his ideas because the opportunities are endless. Let's bow Please help us. Please make us pure-hearted toward you. Please help us to cast away any false loves. Lord, if we've had um, good intentions and good ideas this morning, please would you help us to put those into practice. Uh, confirm every good intention by the power of your spirit. 
We ask it in your powerful name. Amen.